Today's program was brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode number 91. Thank you for tolerating my absence last week. I was at the Sustainable Seafood Week Industry Lab, and it was riveting. Joining me in the studio is my producer, Anne. Hi, Hi. Anne. how's it going? I'm going good. Uh, it's, I'm going good. Oh, God. Going good. Okay, let's get that out of the way, right at the top. I almost did not make it today. That's true. I got the call. I'm going to do a trigger warning on a little poop talk. <laughs> I, uh... Disclosure, if you do not want to hear about Emily's Just bowels, turn it down for just 30 seconds. I'll go. get out in 30 seconds. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this. Yeah, no, uh, you know, we talk, um... I was sitting at the bus stop. Right. I was waiting to get on the bus. I was totally fine. And then I had an unmistakable sign from my body. The wave. Go home. Right. (laughs) Immediately. Like, get in your car and pray to God you make it. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I made it. And then I sat on my couch for like 45 minutes. And I waited until the very last minute to leave if I drove myself here and Mm -hmm. I was like doing all of these mental calculations like okay I know there's a McDonald's on Route 46 (laughs) but it was like for 45 minutes I was like okay I'm okay and I'm okay yeah you're okay you made it I made it here I don't feel great but I feel hungry so I feel like that's That's a good good sign sign. what did you eat I don't know the only thing I can think of is a sandwich for lunch yesterday that I got from an Italian deli which listeners who remember Way back in the day, this was probably episode 15 or so, uh, I found the tip of one of the employee's rubber gloves in my sandwich. I feel like that would probably be the culprit. That sounds like a likely... um, Honest to God, I'd completely forgotten about the glove incident. I was like, oh yeah, I haven't been there in a while. Let me just go get some contaminated lettuce. Yeah. So, I'm fine. Everything's fine. You can turn your radio back up if you turned it down. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I went to the Sustainable Seafood Week Industry Lab, and it was was just an incredible room of people to be with, and I met, um, like, I met the guy who runs the Bumblebee Chopped Clam Cannery in Cape May, New Jersey. I had no idea. Bumblebee's whole line of chopped clams comes from Cape May, and they employ 83 people, and it's New Jersey clams, and no one knows that. And I was like, people need to know about this. That is a very interesting fact. So it's just the clams that come out of it? Just the clams. Wow. Yep. And so, um, yeah, I I met him, and I uh, hung out with just like-minded people and I was reminded or sort of reassured that the question of whether or not a piece of seafood is sustainable is not no one thinks that that should be the responsibility of the retail consumer so there was in this room of about 100 people who are all working in their own little you know we were calling them pods to go for the fish metaphor Mm -hmm. and their own little pods to fix the problem of sustainability higher up in the supply chain so that you as a consumer when you go to buy a piece of fish the decision has already been made what you can trust what you're eating through technology through 
tracing, through incentives, through regulation, through all of these different things, and we are not anywhere close. But I went two years ago, and it was like really grim. Mm. This year, it was really hopeful. So I left feeling energized and excited. Is that, I don't mean to be like the antithesis of that or whatever, but is that a group of people that is saying that? Like, I mean... How I mean to me, like the thought of like you don't have to do any homework, like don't worry about it, like that sends up a trigger for me. Like, wait, what? Like, shouldn't I do some homework? I, you know, I don't know. Yes. So one of the things that that was a takeaway for me was the Cheryl. I want to say Doll. It was her last name. She is the head of the or the not for profit called the Future of Fish. Right. And she said um, <laughs> that to question whether or not seafood is sustainable, or you know, to get any farther than the very like surface judgment on seafood and sustainability and the future of fish you have to fall madly in love with complexity mm-hmm. so anyone can do it and I will say uh, they sponsor Heritage Radio Network I'm a big fan I know that their PR machine is in overdrive because of recent revelations about their New York stores this is separate Whole Foods right. has um Carrie Brownstein, who's going to come on the show, mm-hmm. she has been the spearhead for Whole Foods regulating what fish they are going to sell. And there's a, I wrote an article in Edible and I got a little bit of heat from people who were like, you didn't mention this and you didn't mention that. And I kind of sounded like I was shilling for Whole Foods. I'm not. Right. I'm just saying that they're doing they're walking the walk the very best they can and they're auditing and they're you know supporting community fisheries and they're supporting fishing families and they're you know like one of the big things that freaks me out is that most salmon that you buy if it's salmon that's been farmed and some you know containment wild salmon is given uh, dye in their feed to make the meat pink and so I've, I fear what color would that meat be some sort of like sickly gray were it not for this artificial color sure well I mean I think that, and that's true for like land I mean beef and everything like that too right beef the muscle is red regardless but the the, striated, the striations in the fat when they are grass fed are yellow as opposed mm. to corn fed which the fat is white um, or leaning toward, closer to yellow and closer towards white but it's at Whole Foods, the salmon has no artificial color added. So it's that'll be something people have to get used to. That's cool. No, it's still pink. Okay. It's that it's, it's just not that orangey. It's, it's a right. it's a so I'm going to bring in our guest who's I, you're so I love it. Animated. No, come on in. Um <laughs> Stephen from the Grow NYC. Stephen Wade from the Grow NYC Regional Greens Project. You're like, I want to talk. I want to talk. Not even that I want to talk, but I think just softer. The color tends to be sort of that soft grayish pink mm-hmm. rather than being that vibrant right. like wild salmon kind of color. So I'm not saying and that we have that everyone can just say, "Oh, hands washed. We're done right. here." Because right. the pro- you know, like there's we're, we're not at that point but it's yet. It's in the right direction. That was one of the other things. Sustainability is a direction, not an end. Goal. I like that. So I like I that. Because I think it would be like way too oversimplistic for anyone to say like blanketed either way. Like right. And to- not only that, it's like if I go to the grocery store and I'm like a concerned member of this group. Yeah. And I, it's too confusing for me between like keeping my mm-hmm. toddler in the cart and remembering mm-hmm. to buy charcoal and paying my bills and doing all this stuff. Like I don't have time to ask where the. You f- want to be able to trust something. Just trust somebody. Trust and somebody. I yeah. took my takeaway was you can in the seafood department you could trust Whole Foods. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the other thing that happened to me this week, and I have to be intentionally vague here, but I think the listeners, um, I get feedback from people who listen to the show and who I have had in my classes that they really appreciate real talk from me. 
Your candidness. My candidness. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a few minutes of real talk on my week. Um, right now. Or uh, since 2009, when I graduated culinary school, I have worked really hard to craft a freelance lifestyle for myself. Mm -hmm. I don't really have a boss. I don't have to be in the same place every day. I got burned very, very badly by a job in a cubicle prior to running away to culinary school that sent me into an existential... It was one component of this massive existential depression that I survived, and I blame that job and other uh, elements in my life. But that was really the, like, touchstone for me. Trigger. Was bad. So, um, most, uh, most days, everything's awesome. Like people ask me like, how do you get to do what you do? Mm -hmm. And the lifestyle part of it and the like, wake up when I, you know, when I take my kid to, you know, take my kid to school and like not outsource that to daycare and nannies and, um, be able to work in my garden. Yesterday I painted my pool fence, you know, like all of that stuff when other folks are, in their jobs and I have to remind myself that it's not normal to be able to go grocery to opt to go grocery shopping in the middle of the day on a Monday Mm -hmm. Um, I have the lifestyle factors worked out I love it but when I stop teaching for the summer semester my paychecks stop and so I often go into a panic of like I'm gonna curse like what the fuck are you doing like grow up you have a child you have Mm. responsibilities you need to get a job and so um i periodically go on indeed.com or Mm. snoop around on linkedin or a particular brand of um a, a person's name who we all know is an exacting domestic goddess. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are all familiar. And the joke that I make with my husband is like, yeah, you know, there's never any, there's never any uh, job listing for TV chef. Right. It's just not there. Right. So I, you know, I'll go on the Food Network website. And I'm like, no, still not hiring a new host. Damn yeah, it. Like, you need to create that space. <laughs> I had to create that. But so it's just kind of been this joke. Like that's the job that I'll apply for. So a couple of weeks ago, I went on this particular website and it was there kind of right it was kind of different it wasn't exactly on camera but it was around camera and Mm -hmm. like making all of the food and stuff that would go on camera and I was like I I could imagine myself really doing that and really enjoying that so uh, I went through an in a lengthy interview process and four of my reference professional references were asked to fill out 20 question a 20 question number god how do you say that 20 questions on a questionnaire about me which i'm pretty sure is illegal i think you are not i think only um, employers can just confirm that you worked there it's a little sticky Hmm. um and then i was reminded twice that it was an entry level position and I found myself trying to talk myself into the job that I wanted it to be right. and not as it's been presented to me. Mm-hmm. And there were some other things that happened in terms of like communication and transparency that really struck me as uh, red flags right. and insightful into what the culture of working in a place where you would be expected to be every day from 9 to 6 which means I would have to be on the 6.49 bus a.m. leaving my house and I'd be getting off the bus at 7.30 p.m. on a good day right. and I just couldn't do it I just could not bring myself to um, jump into a lifestyle change that would be so painful to my son and to my family and then the final straw was um 
I got asked to come in and do what we call in the restaurant industry a trail, which I've mm-hmm. talked about before, which saves people in the restaurant industry from saying yes to jobs that they will never fit right. into. Right. So the expectation for a trail in the restaurant industry is you literally go in and just kind of don't be in the way and you maybe ask like dice onions, chop tomatoes, do do something that other people can see. Are you clean? Do you have good knife skills? How do you hold your knife? You know, are you a pain in the ass? Do you know how to chop an onion? But unless you're applying for a chef position, mm-hmm. that's it's usually one day of kind of anonymous just yeah. hide under the radar and, and you know. This was cook a five course meal for us right. of our recipes. And what that said to me was my creativity is not uh, being is not good. It, it's an entry level job. They don't want my creativity. They want me to be able to make right. a perfect slice of birthday cake. Well, and it's also like, uh, yeah, do this. It's completely exacting. We want you know five separate meals and blah blah. blah and you have to be perfect and you have to be at such a high level. But it's entry level, and we're not going to pay you. Yep. You know, what I mean, I think that this yep. is a question overall that we need to start talking about more we as a society. Really, I'm proud of you that you said no because Thank it's you. bullshit. Thank you. I just I was like. I could get the story. I could go to... It was going to be tomorrow. I could go tomorrow and get the story of what it was like to cook this person lunch. Assuming she or he would even be there. (laughs) Uh, Right, right, Which, it doesn't matter. And that's not a good enough story to Mm -hmm. waste my... Waste everybody's time and resources and put myself... My husband disagrees with me on this, but I feel like putting myself up for the criticism of folks who have the other... And I know that the other people who they have interviewed for this position are straight out of culinary school. And they haven't picked any of those people. So which is it? Is it entry level? Right. Or do you want somebody who's not entry level, in which case say, make us a five course lunch. We want to see what you're capable of, because that would tell me in the next year, two, three years that you commit to this position or 30, Mm -hmm. we are interested because we, you know, we want fresh air. Potential. Potential and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And I just, I just couldn't do it. And it was so, so difficult Mm -hmm. so difficult and I want to make sure that in my you know transparency with you guys out in listening like it's not all cakewalk you know it's like yeah. it's not all it's hard she work to, to do to five different things yeah, and, and, and like, in the afternoon <laughs> so I'm gonna and, and I so other sacrifices I right. want everyone who was involved with me uh, going back and forth and drinking slightly too heavily for the past seven to ten days I really appreciate all of your love and support uh, I'm gonna <laughs> rein myself back in and now now I really got to like put my nose to the grindstone because if I'm not going to take somebody else's money and I'm not going to take somebody else's right. dental insurance, I got to figure that you gotta out. You got to create that TV I chef job. We got to get it going. <laughs> right. So and now our date table sat down and they can see us. I forgot to mention the date table. That's okay. They're here. They're here. They're we here. They're cute. New dates. Much happier than the couple last week. Um, I'm going to top that all up by saying yesterday, because I didn't have a place to be in the morning, I got asked to go and ring the NASDAQ opening bell. I saw that. That was great. That was such a thrill. There was an organization with the Future of Fish, our uh, Sustainable Seafood Week. There's a um, Manhattan and Montauk project, a Save Our Stripers project. So all of these different stakeholders in keeping fish, you know, at the top of our, uh, uh, you know, national conversation and tied in with Sustainable Seafood Week. Uh, Carrie Heffernan was there. Floyd Cardoz was there. And this guy, Mike Dawson, who runs Manhattan and Montauk, was like, do you want to come? I was like, 
yes I would love to do that <laughs> I would love Monday that. morning and then on the bus ride in I had like serious imposter syndrome where I was like it's gonna be me and Carrie Heffernan and Floyd Cardoza we all have imposter and, syndrome just keep on keeping on and I just showed up and they were all they were amazing and then we so we did it and then when you go outside and the, up on the NASDAQ thing in Times Square was my photograph I mean like save the stripers and Carrie Heffernan but like me yeah <laughs> I'll take so it so that was that was such a thrill and like it's that kind of stuff that is that gonna pay my kids daycare expense no it might set the path in the right direction though. I'm gonna, saying you know, yes I just keep saying yes yep. and say it so the takeaway for the listeners is if you feel like you feel that sense in your body at the bus stop or in an interview follow it <laughs> follow it follow follow the poop wave follow the poop wave alright All right, you guys we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we are going to talk heritage wheat and grains with my friend June Russell and Stephen Wade Yay. the song is called Jump Rope by the Ginger Lilies we'll be right back to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Joining me in the studio is Stephen Wade of Grow NYC, and on the phone we have my friend June Russell. Hi, June. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm good. I'm sorry you couldn't join us. You've got one of those real jobs that we were talking about before the break. <laughs> and how. That, that is true, but it's, it's a pretty amazing job. There's lots of flexibility. I'm not stuck to a cubicle. I get to go out to farms and field days. Uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a great job. That's awesome. So tell me, Stephen, why don't you give me an overview of, and I, what do I call it? Is it the Heritage Grains Project? So the official name is the Grown YC Regional Grains Project. Regional Grains, okay. Yes, and basically this has been a five-year effort, mostly run by June, a number of partners, to increase grains capacity in the Northeast and to improve farmers' livelihoods and their soil integrity through the cultivation and processing of grains. And that's sort of the short elevator pitch. June, if you have anything to tack on there. Sure. That's, um, I think of this, you know, part of the project is, is uh, it, it's a food system building. We're trying to bring grain production back into the Northeast. And so from the ground up, this has been a, a massive effort on behalf of our partners and the work we've done, and certainly the consumer who's actually looking to buy regional grains, which maybe 10 years ago was not really so much on people's radar. But we're really talking about a larger piece of the food system that we lost uh, over 100 years ago in the Northeast. Where did that go? Because I don't think when most people think of the Northeast that they think of grains. No, um, you'll see a lot of wheat grain for sure. You'll see lots of corn, soy, and alfalfa, things that 
support the dairy industry. Mm. Um, but for anything that go- has gone to human consumption, I think the last of the bigger infrastructure left maybe 50 years ago. Now, that said, there are big facilities uh, that still exist in Rochester and Albany, um, but that's not really part of the food system that we operate in. We work with smaller farmers, farms of the middle, so to speak. Um, and to answer your question, that production went to the, the Midwest, you know, the mythical Midwest of the North and South Dakota, parts of Canada, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, where the climate is, is much better. The growing conditions are certainly better for growing certain types of grain, not all grains, but certainly like, you know, bread wheat has been the holy grail, and that certainly does better in a drier climate. Um, than the humid, the humid northeast where we get lots of rain during harvest and flowering season. You sort of had two historical events sort of happen close to each other. One was that after generations of early grains cultivation in New York State and around, uh, that's what happens when you plant the same crop over and over and over again. You end up having soil depletion, and soils and yields in upstate New York had sort of a collapse in the later turn of the century. That combined with the opening of certain infrastructural things like the Erie Canal, and the confluence of those two events suddenly transport costs were much easier, water transport to places like New York City were much easier, and combine that together, and you had sort of the rainfall where suddenly you didn't have to have grains cultivation in the Northeast the same way that you did back when colonies were sort of still around. And so maybe people who had farms got offered money to build housing tracts or no just no? no i mean this is going way back way back and really why do we have so much dairying capacity up in the northeast oh, you had all these fallow areas that were perfect for <laughs> pasture lands but couldn't actually yield anything in the way of productive crops because the soil basically had nothing left in it which is now funnily enough sort of the inverse so now we've had cows on, is it the same property that the New York State farmers are growing on that had been used for dairy is now getting tra- changed back over to wheat or and I shouldn't say just wheat it's grains in general right Yeah June could answer this one yeah. better than I could Yeah sure I think that you know some of our some of the leaders some of our farmer um, the leaders in the farming community and who also are educators like Klaus Martin and Tor Archer, um, they've been growing animal feed for many years and or growing organically at that. And so that, that transition has been easier for them mostly because they've had the land base and they have the equipment. But what we are seeing is that there's a great broad diversity of scales that people are getting into to try growing out these grains again. And it's anywhere from folks who are trying one acre uh, you know, up to, yeah, I think Tor's doing maybe 1,500 at this point. Um, so we're trying to work across that sector for and find markets for those folks, no matter what scale that they're, they're operating in. It's also about integrating it with existing green market farmers, those who are doing primarily truck farming, produce farming, where introduction of grains into a cycle is not only an important value-added crop for them during seasons where green, where plant production is just not possible, but also to help improve soil capacity and nutrient capacity 
during times where you know you can run only so many rotations on pure produce. It's good to have things to help break it up, to help reintroduce compounds, nitrogen fixing in the soil, stuff like buckwheat that helps release and activate things that might be trapped in the soil, mm-hmm. and having that be a part of the process as well. So let's talk a little bit about the green market's uh, role in this, because Stephen, I met you just walking through the green market with my husband, and we walked by and we were like, New York State Greens, that's cool. And we, you know, we walked back and back, and then we came back, and I was like, I want to talk to this guy. <laughs> so I was asking you a bunch of questions that people ask me, and we'll get to those the, sort of the home cook questions in a second. But one of the things that I sort of expected as you were, uh, my husband likes to make bread, and so you guys were talking about you could use this wheat or that wheat, uh, and the different grinds and the different flexibility and how they behave. Uh, and when we picked out a bag of wheat, I was fully prepared for you to say, you know, and it was uh, it was what a pound, maybe it was a two pound bag, two pounder probably. I was fully prepared for you to say that'll be twenty two dollars. <laughs> and when you said it was eight, right? Yes, uh, eight or seven. I, what we gave. I think it was the red fife that we got yes. you guys, and yeah, that's seven dollars. And I like, I couldn't believe it. I was like this hyper local, super delicious. Like I'm giving the money directly to the farmer. All of the check boxes are ticked, and it's only seven dollars. This is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, part of that is we're still a, as a grant project, part of this is promotion. We are here to, especially on my end at the market, we are there to raise awareness of these products, to create access points for these products, both for wholesale and retail customers. And part of that is also, as a promotional authority, is to, you know, use what we have as allowances in the grant cycle to basically, you know, sell these things at, not at cost, but definitely not with the intention of raking in massive amounts of right. money. Right. So right. we are sort of at that advantage. Now, that being said, like, we are still able to recoup our costs of that, and it is something that we're really working toward, but you're not looking at, like, you know, $20 to $30 bags of grain. At the end of the day, you're looking at, you know, we sell the majority of our one-pound whole grains at $4 for one pound, mm-hmm. and that's pretty comparable to what you see in bulk bins at Whole Foods or other places as well. So you're saying you and June are not going to retire on the grain sales <laughs> at the green market in Union Square? <laughs> if, only, if only we made commission. <laughs> so let's talk, let's talk about some home-cook questions. Um, Stephen, you uh, have you said before when we went on air that you test recipes. So, what are some of the things that people should know? Like you said, at the the red fife wheat. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So, red fife is a particular cultivar of wheat, and something we pride ourselves in doing in the project is raising awareness of the ways that single varieties of wheat have different performance qualities, different mm-hmm. contents, and using as a starting point that not all wheats are created the same. They are all very different. They all have different properties. And especially for Northeastern grains, it's a very different market than what you say get with Montana wheats or Dakota's wheats and the like. And June, I saw you by happenstance at the uh, food show at the Javits Center. Uh, what was that? The restaurant? International restaurant show, right? And what are some of the questions that industry people who are at an event like that are asking you? Well, there's, there's definitely a big range. You know, I think that there's a lot of support for local, and people certainly want to buy. Uh, you know, we're obviously in New York State, so people want to buy New York grains. Um, and then there's an, a real interest in what is happening with these heritage varieties and what that buzz is about and why they're different. Um, and, and there's good reasons for there to be buzz. Um, you know, I say that one thing that the that the industry has done is that they have calibrated all of us 
basically an all-purpose flour so that most of us, whether we go home and we're going to make a bread or a pie, chances are that most consumers are going to have an all-purpose flour at home. Well, you know, historically, all-purpose flour is made from a blend of different kinds of wheat. It may be a soft wheat, it may be a hard wheat, kind of a very protein content to it. Um, so these, these heritage varieties go back technically prior green revolution. So they're varieties that were pre-1950. Um, they have not been hybridized. They haven't been changed in any way. They have um, some interest in them is that they, they can adapt from year to year uh, based on what the climate is like in this region. So you just referenced red fire. Now that's one of the reasons that has a decent price point is that there have been people who've been working to bring red pipes back over the last 10 years. And so we're at the point where we can, yeah, we can bring it to the consumer at the market and offer it for $7 for two pounds, which is a decent price for that. Um, and it's certainly not going to compete with something that's 60 cents a pound coming off of a giant roller mill. Um, but we do a lot of education on, you know, what, what's the difference between varieties? Are there health consequences? Are there environmental impacts? Um, and, and there is. There's all of those things. Um, we're, we're talking about working in a system that's very different than the conventional big agribusiness model. Um, and there are health benefits and there and there's soil benefits. And that's part of the interest is uh, there's resilience to these varieties as well. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, it really comes down to also like those are performance quality issues. Like, and that's what a lot of both home bakers and professional chefs are looking at as well. Like, each variety performs very differently. Like, for example, going back to again, red fife. We have two different plantings. We have a spring planting, and we have a winter planting. And winter plantings have a lower protein content. They're much more is for uh, all-purpose baking. And it's important because if someone just sees a whole wheat flour, they're just going to assume, oh, it's good for whatever. It's going to happen there. And it's important to be able to distinguish and to know, like, the planting cycle is going to matter for this. The type of flower we're talking about is going to matter. Um, especially, case in point, with emmer, for example. Really great grain, one of the so-called ancient grains. It was very uh, well out here in the Northeast. Beautiful protein content, very low naturally occurring gluten. And uh, when homemakers see a flower like that, like, can I use this the same way as I would a whole wheat flour? The answer to that is strictly no, because the gluten structure is so different mm. and the protein structure is so different. Like, you're not going to have that same performativity, whereas a conventional wheat flour would take that, expand, have lots of extensibility in the dough. You don't find that with emmer in the same way. It actually doesn't stretch as far. You end up with a little bit of flatness, but it can still absorb large amounts of hydration. So for bread baking specifically, like it requires some toying around and having people be prepared for that is a big I, part of that process. I feel like that's a huge chunk of people who are like, I want to play with flour. Right. You know, like we're, we're kind of saying it in this like, okay, you got to know all these very specific things. On the other hand, it's like, what's the worst case scenario? You know, like you end up with a heavy loaf that you grind in the breadcrumbs or you toast or, you know, whatever it is. It's not like, you know, but it's a mental headspace, though. Like, having someone be prepared for that eventuality or that possibility is an important part of this frame. Like, not everyone's com- We have plenty of people who are comfortable taking various flowers and just toying around with them. But if you're someone who's, like, taking this on the gamble and being like, why is this different than the store-bought flower I've been buying for since time immemorial? You have to prepare them for the fact that there might be failures, that it might not work the way they want them to, and that actually it might have uses other than the things they want to do with it. And it's that thing, knowing the want, like what they want to do with it, 
versus what they can do with it. I think we're gonna we're out of time and we're gonna stop there because that's like the the natural theme of this show. How does this happen? <laughs> I'm like I looked up at the clock and like it's two thirty. I know. Oh, Already. So, so June and Stephen, thank you so much. You can find out more information on Grow NYC's website. Do you want to give us the exact info? Yeah, the address is growmc.org backslash grains is the website information. And you can also find us on Instagram at greenmarket underscore grains. And will you be at the Union Square Farmers Market this summer? Right. Uh, yes. Every Wednesday we'll be there bright and early from around 8 in the morning till at least 3 in the afternoon. Wonderful. June, thank you so much. Anything you want to add at the end? Oh, thanks for having us, Emily. All right. Thank you, you guys. I feel, like they, I feel like we literally just scratched the surface. There's so much more to talk about. <laughs> but hopefully we got people thinking about wheat and their expect or grains and their expectation on outcomes yeah. and life. There you go. I mean, I feel, like, I feel like it's the same thing. And it's like jam, man. That's how I ended up <laughs> in the kitchen professionally. Thank you for listening, everyone. And until next week, keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.